This is the Law and the Future of War podcast, brought to you from the University of Queensland Law School. Through conversation with experts in technology, law and military affairs, this series explores how international law regulates new military technologies. The impact of geopolitics and strategic thinking and priorities shape how, when and even if legal regulation is pursued by states. As we enter a new year against a continued backdrop of uncertainty surrounding the current rules-based world order, it's timely to consider what the impact of new technologies might be upon international relations and reflect upon Australia's recent strategic and defence history to aid us in identifying what strategic and political issues 2022 might bring. We're very fortunate today to be joined by Professor John Blacksland, one of Australia's most renowned military strategy writers and historians, to talk about the current geopolitical landscape as it applies to Australia, reflecting on the trends from our recent past, and to talk briefly about how drones and associated technologies may impact the future global order. Professor Blacksland is a Professor of International Security and Intelligence Studies and former head of the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre at the Australian National University. He has extensive intelligence experience in operations and in strategic settings as an ADF military intelligence officer and as an academic and historian. His long list of written works includes as the principal author of ASIO's official history and recently on US-Thai relations, Australia's contributions to the Korean, Afghanistan and Iraq wars, as well as contributing to the 2021 book Drones and Global Order, which we'll speak about briefly today. John is a senior fellow of the Higher Education Academy, a fellow of the Royal Society of New South Wales, a member of the Australian Army Journal Editorial Board, and the first Australian recipient of a US Department of Defence Minerva Research Initiative grant. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us today. Oh, Lauren, Lauren, it's a pleasure to be with you on the program. Thank you for having me. You published a uh, geostrategic SWOT analysis in 2019. Um, first up, could you summarise what that contained and then could you discuss what you think has changed since then? Yeah, thanks, Lauren. Yeah, so it's interesting. I I tried to put together using the, the business concept of looking at your internal strengths and weaknesses and your external opportunities and threats, a kind of geostrategic view of how that might apply to Australia writ large. And I had a lot of fun doing it, pulling it together, looking at all the internal strengths and weaknesses and external opportunities and threats. And the list was long. And on, on the list of threats, I was... Uh, uh, prescient enough to add to the list uh, pandemics, which, but it was the last one on the list. It was, I didn't think it was going to feature quite as prominently as it would, uh, but it was certainly on the list. But essentially, as I did that, as I thought about it and tried to figure out, well, so what? What to try to distill a you know kind of higher order meaning from what I was reflecting on? It struck me that there are three overlapping. Uh, broad domains that are affecting our, the world we're living in at the moment. One is great power contestation. Another is looming environmental catastrophe. And the third is a spectrum of governance challenges. And that's in the context of the fourth industrial revolution. So all of those factors are at play at the moment. And you get pundits who will stress one or another, uh, but few actually really try and grasp the full spectrum. And my sense is that if we're going to think holistically and sensibly about paths uh, for the future, we need to be mindful of all of the dimensions at work. Because if you think about, for instance, in the Pacific, uh, if you just look at the Pacific in terms of great power contestation, you'll miss uh, much of the of the significance of how uh, climate change is affecting people's livelihoods and circumstances and their perceptions of Australia, for instance. Similarly, if you only look at climate change and you're not looking at corruption, you're not looking at people smuggling, drug smuggling, the breakdown of law and order, terrorism, and so on, you, 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 what you come up with as a, as a solution is going to miss many of the nuances and may well actually complicate the situation even further. And of course, much of the historical modelling we've had for great power contestation is kind of made to a certain extent uh, not quite redundant, but certainly subject to considerable questioning because of the fact that we're living through the fourth industrial revolution. The world isn't the way it was before. This isn't Cold War redux. It's more a spectrum of competition, conflict, contestation, uh, and everything in between. And so that makes for a real conundrum because 
no, no government department or agency or academic discipline or, or jurisdiction owns the full gamut of the problem. It's beyond anybody, uh, you know, and I've talked about it with government secretaries and ministers and senior military officials, and they all say, John, that's all well and good, but I only own a part of that problem, you know. I said, well, yes, but, you know, if you don't buy in on it, <laughs> um, it's going to be hard to get us all buying in on this, you know. Yeah. And so, and with the tyranny of the urgent, many people are just kind of fixated on their own little patch and addressing their own challenges and responding to their immediate pressing you know needs and and demands um that aren't looking you know aren't addressing the challenges in a holistic long-term intergenerational way and this is the thing that really strikes me as i think about the challenges arising from the geostrategic SWOT analysis for Australia is that we really do need to think more long-term and more holistically we are as a nation and various government agencies are really good at responding to crises. So a, uh, a tsunami, an earthquake, uh, uh, a disaster somewhere, we can really turn on the works. We can really, uh, you've got an interdepartmental emergency task force will get set up, interagency negotiations will happen quickly, we'll get ships and aircraft and aid and support provided quickly to the people in need. Um, and we'll pat ourselves on the back and say, geez, we're good, aren't we? Look, see we, how good we are. And we'll get the media people out there that will make great photos, uh, you know, and, and captions of what we've done, and it'll make people feel good. But it's the drill, it's dealing with the symptom, not the cause. And uh, that's my concern, is that we really need to step back from the tyranny of the urgent, step back from that kind of focus on the crisis and look at the spectrum of issues that are generating the crises, plural. Uh, and that's a problem that is not going to go away. And 2022 is already manifesting a whole swag of, you know, various permutations thereof. For sure. So certainly going to keep me employed for a long time and probably most of us um, entertained to a certain extent, worried in another extent, mm. and, and certainly occupied. I've uh, I've heard the phrase the three C's: COVID, climate change, and China, as being our three main concerns. Um, and I, I guess you've sort of touched on those in in slightly different guises, talking about great power competition, um, the environmental factors, and then the the pandemic sort of being that unforeseen. Um, as to how much it has actually affected us in in across the globe, I mean, I think mm. uh, you probably recall that there's there's an option in some government leave systems to tick pandemic leave, and I remember looking at it for twenty years, going, "Why is this still here?" <laughs> and wonder now if anyone's actually used it <laughs> in the last couple of years as an option. But um, exactly. <laughs> but but with that in mind, I mean, th yes, there's been this one spanner in the works called COVID that has affected how we've have addressed things, but that's it's probably highlighted a few other underlying issues that have been there for a while. Um, sovereign supply is probably one that has been brought to the fore as a consequence of the pandemic. Um, what are your views then on how you address some of these systemic or intergenerational issues when we're dealing with governments that are focused only on one election to the next and legislative agendas, speaking from you know my wheelhouse from a legal perspective, are always going to be short-term goals based on a short-term governmental um, term of, of, of office? Yeah, no, it's a great question, Lauren. Uh, the thing is that we get the government, we vote mm. in, and the government responds to what it perceives as the pressing priorities of the electorate uh, to, a, to a large extent. Uh, and, you know, there's it's a two-way street there in terms of who drives the agenda. But Part of the issue of what I've been trying to do by raising awareness of these issues is to raise a kind of sense of uh, the agency of the electorate to have a say mm -hmm. and to shape uh, the approach of political parties who have been very much focused on the urgent uh, short-term issues, uh, the immediate political cycle and trying to get in or retain office um, and, um, and get them to see that we as a nation can no longer afford to operate that way, that we actually need to change the model, yeah. not change the constitutional model so much. I think our constitution is about as robust as you can get it under the circumstances. Yes, I'm, I mean, I, I am a supporter of uh, having a, 
a um, Australian as a head of state, although I'm not convinced about the model that's up at the moment, but that's another issue entirely. That's at least another hour of discussion. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Um, but I am I am uh, of the view that we need to be thinking in a different way about these issues. And I think one of the things uh, I've been advocating for is an est- the establishment of a National Institute for Net Assessment. Mm-hmm. Net Assessment is a, the idea looking at holistically the, all of the pluses and minuses to make an assessment of what what needs what are the what's the challenge uh, and what are the options what 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 do you have available what resources do you have available you know how significant how pressing is it and and so on and trying to think through how best to respond to the challenge ahead now because this the challenges we face are multifaceted you know i've tried to distill it into a, you know a simple venn diagram of great power contestation environmental catastrophe and governance challenges mm-hmm. it could be the triple c you know it could be, it's a number of ways of skinning that cat but essentially it's multifaceted and all of the factors have a knock on consequence on the others um so thinking through the ramifications beyond the electoral cycle I think warrants the establishment of a national institute of net assessment, as I say, or uh, a national resilience institute, some people might want to call it, to think through how we actually kind of prepare ourselves for things getting more complicated, more challenging, uh, more difficult into the future. And that requires us to plan and think through the implications and then have a conversation that gets bipartisan support and that the Australian people think, you know what, that makes sense, let's go with that. And part of what, I, what I'm proposing is that we have a uh, what I'm calling an Australian Universal Scheme for National and Community Service, or OSNEX. Now, this isn't conscription. This is a voluntary but incentivized voluntary scheme whereby young Australians, but not just young Australians, are strongly encouraged to participate in uh, SES, Rural Fire Service, Ambulance Service, State Police, Federal Police, Army Neighbour Air Force and or National Parks and Wildlife and or paramedical support in uh, you know, old people's homes and things like that. So there's a range of things that are really pressed for resources at the moment a lot of people you keep hearing this line of why we need the uh, we need to get the military to come and do something for us I'm thinking guys our defense force it's a boutique force it's really not that big um and it's actually got a role it's got a function it's meant to be performing which is kind of like an insurance policy so you actually don't want to be over committing the defense force to do stuff that it's not designed for um now, there's people say, oh, yeah, but John, they can do it. You know, and even a lot of practitioners will say, oh, but it's good for the military to do this. It's good practice and it's kind of uses a lot of the skills that we that we develop in, inside in-house anyway. And that's all true and it's all well and good. But as I point out in the SWOT analysis, the problem is that the challenges we face and which we've managed to handle reasonably okay so far have tended to happen consecutively, one after the other, not concurrently. So the droughts, the floods, the fires, the pandemics, they've happened consecutively, um, not concurrently. If we had them happen concurrently and a conflict in the region that required the Defence Force to intervene, you know, a bit like what would happen in East Timor just over 20 years ago, um, be it another Solomon Islands, a challenge in Bougainville or somewhere else who are we going to get to do that you know this is this defense force is there's 30,000 in the army there's another 15 or so in the army navy and air force so it's about 60,000 58,000 all up in the in the Australian defense force regular forces and another 15 to 25 in the reserves depending on a good which day you, you count them on that's actually not very many you know um we think, oh, we'll just get a, we'll get the medicals to run a hospital here and there. There's only one uh, major hospital facility in the Defence Force that's deployable. We have subordinate, you know, ambulance types facilities, field ambulance facilities, but we've got only a half a dozen of them. Uh, so, you know, people have this mythical idea of the Army and the Defence Force being this monolithic force that you can just deploy at will. It doesn't work that way, especially when we resource it the way we do. And people think, oh, we're spending so much money in the military. Okay, 
yes, on one level, but we, we spend a lot more on education than on health, a lot more on both of those other things, let alone governance and a range of other things. Um, but it's not, you know, when you when you talk about submarines or aircraft or tanks and things, it sounds like a lot of money because that's a one-off item. But the bottom line is that as a nation, um, we've got this sense that the Defence Force can do it. It can't. The Defence Force is actually really not got geared to handle all of these challenges concurrently. So my, my, my sense is, and from this is my kind of so what from the SWAT, we actually need to muscle up mm. across the range of a crisis response mechanisms for governance, environmental and great power contestational challenges that might arise in the near term. And the thing is that all of them are ones that could actually happen pretty darn quickly. Sure. But we're not geared for yeah. it because we've thought we've got a just-in-time philosophy. We've been living uh, in the afterglow of the post-Cold War years, the unipolar moment, we didn't really have to do very much heavy lifting. You know, the biggest thing we got involved with was the East Timor crisis 20, 23 years ago now. Um, and we patted ourselves on the back and thought, aren't we good? Geez, we good, you know. Um, of course, but that was a fairly benign set of circumstances. Things could go a lot more pear-shaped than that, and we're just not postured to respond appropriately. Sure. I think that raises two um, two other points I'd, I'd like to explore with you. First is the idea of the Defence Force as um, a risk management strategy and that we're deploying our insurance policy for for situations that it's simply not designed for. So use of the ADF in domestic settings um, as a regular response agency to do those domestic crisis responses. Mm. Um, and then the other thing is that enabling the Defence Force to mitigate risk through the use of technology. Um, so in response to that, the first limb, um, talking about using the Defence Force as the, you know, as the the bag carriers for people in quarantine. You know, we've seen we've seen pictures of soldiers, sailors and airmen, air, air crew, crew um, now yeah. out there, you know, assisting people in into and out of quarantine by carrying their bags, noting that there's no yeah. legislative authority for um, ADF people to be doing those kinds of activities in Australia. They're just there like any other volunteer could mm. have been, except that, of course, mm. as an ADF member, they're told they have to be there. Um, so yeah. what what do you think is the right balance, though, in an absence of, an, of an, another force or another uh, readily available resource of, of people to tap to, to do this? Who, If not the ADF, then, and I know you've suggested a potential volunteer force, but at, at the moment, who else? Well, at the moment, there isn't a who else, mm. which is crazy. Two years after the commencement of the pandemic, we still don't have anyone else. We haven't stopped to constitute a an alternative non-traditional security force, mm. if you like. Uh, we're still relying on the Defence Force to do this. And it's like, dang, has nobody sort of seen that this might be the new normal? Mm. Has nobody stopped to think about how we can actually redo this in a way that's sustainable? Mm. Uh, because this is not what we're doing at the moment is not sustainable. Uh, and we've we've been trying this kind of, uh, you know, a Band-Aid approach that, well, it's only got to last another couple of months and then hopefully this wave, the Omicron wave this time or the Delta one before uh, will, will pass and we'll be good, right? We will, mm. won't we? Uh, I, I think that's just... That, that kind of risk management is, is a very dangerous approach. And unfortunately, it's a reflection of a approach to politics that's very short-sighted. It's very much about the next political, it's the current political cycle, mm. rather than an intergenerational sense of, hey, how do we manage this with the long term in mind? How do we do this in a way that, that we can sustain and that financially, but also in terms of just the resources of people, um, how do we do this so that we set ourselves up for success, set ourselves up for being resilient and robust to take the next wave with on the chin, you know? And I, we're not there. We're not there by a long shot. Internal to the Defence Force, there's sort of been a bit of a delineation that these sort of domestic crisis responses is being pushed more and more to the Reserve Force to leave the full-time Defence Force more focused on their full-time role of preparing for higher-end conflict um, and some suggestion that the investment in the reserves is is better placed to support that sort of domestic response force. Do you think that it's that's a different model that could work, is having a separate, you know, an internal response force that is using those military assets? I mean, the, 
the things that the, the military has that other forces don't is the ability to pretty much deploy into a greenfield site and set up communications, medical systems, all of those things that you need in a crisis response. Um, and yeah. we're quite a small country as far as, uh, as you said, GDP spending on, on um, defence isn't isn't great, but we've already spent the money on these, um, these resources. Um, do you think that that's functional or do you think that there needs to be an additional spend to have more than one set of these sort of resources? So... Um Good question. Uh, I'm writing, a, editing a book on uh, mobilising army resources at the moment, historically informed, going back to the beginning of the 20th century, looking at national service, looking at how we how we resourced the two world wars, how we resourced, how we ramped up in uh, for for the in the early 20, uh, 21st century, how we responded to Operation Bushfire Assist and COVID Assist, etc. So a couple of chapters there by a lady called Renee mm-hmm. Kitson is. Are really interesting, which are coming in the in the book in the next little while. What, one of the things that comes out of that's very very clear is that the reserves will do what they're told. They're mm-hmm. really good, you know. They're very capable, and that part of that is because of the military yeah. training, um, and that they are well placed to respond. If they're not being asked to do something else, if they're not being asked to play their main role, which is to support the regular force for a you know crisis offshore. Um, so yes, you can do that if you need to. And the the skills that they uh, acquire in the military are really handy, uh, and the and the equipment that they, that comes with it really handy for those kind of crises, floods, fires, uh, pandemics. Mm. They're really handy, you know. So communications, logistics, health, medicals, food, transport, all those kind of functions that they can just turn on. They're really really good at. But they've got limited quantities of them. They can't do it in a sustained way across everywhere. So you've got to you've got to pick and choose how you're going to do this. And my point is that yes, that's all well and good. The reserves can do that and do it really, really well um, if that's the only thing that's mm. going. And my point is that I don't know if you've been noticing things in the news, but there's the prospect of a significant escalation of great power contestational-related challenges in the neighbourhood in the future. Ukraine, Korea, South China Sea, Taiwan, line of actual control, uh, we're talking about a swag of issues that have been bubbling away, festering away, where the, the trigger for violent kinetic use of force by nation states is actually pretty close to being used. Uh, these are things that are could, in short order, materialise into open conflict. And now we all hope and pray that that doesn't happen, but uh, hope is not a plan. Um, and you do need to look at the the prospects of things deteriorating and then hedging your bets and risk managing the consequences. And this is where I don't think we have been risk managing the consequences very well, because if our defence force is in, you know, I've got about half a dozen plausible scenarios in my mind that could arise at short notice. If our defence force is tasked to do a one or two or three or four of them in any way remotely like concurrently, then those reserves are not going to be available for the fires or the floods or the pandemics. And we haven't sought to muscle up the SES, the RFS, the state police, you know, bodies that are already stretched, the nursing, you know, paramedical facilities in support of hospitals and and, uh, aged people care facilities and so on. How come this is proven so difficult for us to get our heads around. In part, I think it's because of the, the nature of the, the federation. You know, we've got this division of responsibilities between the states and the federal government. And uh, by and large, over the last century, 120 years or so, that's worked fairly well, you know. Broadly, we've all kind of appreciated that splitting the powers between the states and the federal government kind of works because you don't want to give too much power to any one body, right, because power mm. gets abused. You know, we know that. That's why we have elections. So you can vote, vote the mm. bastards out, get someone else in, give mm. someone else a chance and hope, you know, this is that's what a democracy, a parliamentary democracy does. Um, but at the moment, we're kind of living with the kind of one of the downsides of the current system is that 
it's about shifting blame. It's someone else's problem, someone else's responsibility. I don't have to worry about this and maybe I'll deal with it after the election and uh, then duck shove the blame onto the next echelon up or the next echelon down of jurisdictional responsibility, be it state or federal, local, you know, or one government department or another. Um, and then, of course, the problem is also that, you know, pundits like myself who are looking at this, we've got our own academic kind of uh, lens through which we tend to view things. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're not all that comfortable going outside the, the clear, clearly demarcated lane of our own academic mm -hmm. discipline. Um, and unfortunately, the challenges we face are not just about one specific discipline. They're transdisciplinary. Uh, they're, you know, as I say, trans-jurisdictional, trans-disciplinary, uh, uh, trans-generational. Sure. So with, with that in mind, then, looking at the current establishment of the ADF and the current resourcing of the ADF in terms of its capacity to respond to what may be multiple high-intensity um, conflicts around the world in very short order or short notice, given where we're sitting um, geopolitically at the moment. Are there, um, are there parallels, do you think, in how we have responded to previous events um, in the last century that will assist us in responding to what we think might be coming? Um, or do you think that this is a new wave and a new kind of, of conflict or potential conflict? So, yeah, no, I don't think we're looking at a repeat of World War II. Um, for starters, we're now living in the... You know, we haven't been thinking about it that much lately since the end of the Cold War, but we are living in an era where there are more than half a dozen nuclear-armed states which have their, their, uh, their nuclear arsenal uh, gives us what, you know, we call the MAD theory, the mutually assured destruction, which has a, you know, a, a ominous sound. It's kind of absurd, the, the, the thought that people might actually press the red button on these nuclear weapons, uh, as Kim Jong-un seems to be wanting to do in North Korea, um, and and then trigger a chain reaction of a descent to, you know, mm. hell um, in a nuclear holocaust. That is a scenario that is well understood by practitioners and who have set in place in uh, all of these countries with nuclear weapons mechanisms to prevent these kind of happening by accident. And it is with that in mind that the, the, the prospects of war we face today don't look like they yeah. used to. Um, so, you know, back in the, in the Vietnam War era, it was a proxy war in, uh, in, in Vietnam, in, in Korea, 1950, when uh, Doug Douglas MacArthur was thinking, look, we're going to, the North the Chinese had invaded North Korea, had come to support the North Koreans, crossed the Yalu River and started rounding up the Americans and Australians and other allied troops in northern Korea. He wanted to drop some nuclear bombs on the Chinese. And of course, President Truman, sensible man that he was, said, no way, you're sacked. Uh, that's not happening. Um, and and ever since then, sanity has prevailed. You know, wise men and women have basically recognised that that's a threshold, threshold you do not want to cross. You must avoid studiously crossing that threshold. And so if you are going to studiously avoid crossing that threshold, what do you do? Well, you come up with proxies. You come up with cyber war. You come up with uh, deception operations. You come up with... Um, uh, political subversion, you come up with schemes, the kinds of likes of which we're seeing manifested in Ukraine today. Because Vladimir Putin knows that he doesn't want really to trigger the kind of reaction that might see the United States feel it's obliged to respond. So it's operating below that kinetic threshold, below that kind of threshold that's going to trigger that, that massive in intervention. So I mention that because People say, well, John, what are you talking about? You know, what kind of scenarios could we possibly see happen in our neck of the woods? Well, um, apart from the ones I've given to you, which is Korean Peninsula, which is we're still actually at technically at yes. war in Korea. We've got an armistice, but it's been it, it was still technically at war since the armistice was signed in 1953. Um, but 
we uh, also face, you know, enormous tensions over the South China Sea, uh, over Taiwan. Uh, we have obligations in supporting the defence of Malaysia and Singapore. Uh, there is an expectation we will help the United States in a crisis in the neighbourhood. Uh, we are getting closer to Japan and Korea than ever before. And we're now in the quad with China, with India and Japan and uh, the United States. And there are a range of pressure points that they are feeling. Here for Japan, it's the Senkaku Islands or what the Chinese call the Jiayu Islands. Uh, for the Indians, it's the line of actual control in the Himalayas. Interestingly, you know, very, you think about what's happened in the line of actual control last year. It was or the year before, sorry, clubbing, not sh shooting guns with ammunition, but clubbing people to death because that was technically not in breach of the rules. You know, it's like, really, this is kind of barbaric, but it's what it came to. Um, and this is kind of, this is what we're seeing, people trying to work around the limitations that they, they're, they're, they're uh, uh, subject to, to get their uh, political objective met, you know, and as a, you know, this is wonderful Clausewitzian dictum, you know, war is an extension of politics yes. by other means. And certainly that is what we're seeing manifest in Ukraine. We're seeing it manifest in the South China Sea. We're seeing it manifest in the Korean Peninsula and elsewhere. And with the Houthis in, um, in Yemen as, as well, I suspect. And Yemen. Oh, yeah. man, what mm. a basket case that one is. This is a shocking situation mm. where you see that, you know, the Saudis uh, with American backing, uh, the Kunisuni uh, Shia divide manifest in this ugly fight over Yemen where Iran supporting proxies, you know, with a, a degree of understandable concern that based on grievances on the ground, uh, and Saudi Arabia seeing this in very much in terms of Iran uh, trying to undermine Saudi Sunni influence in the Middle East. Uh, you know, the gloves are off and it's ugly. Thankfully, yeah. neither of them are nuclear powers at this stage, although Iran is fast approaching that threshold. There's so many interrelated issues going on. And sort of when you were speaking about the, the nuclear power um issued sort of I, I always hark back to the Dr. Strangelove you know scenarios but um <laughs> that's and, and, and you know that's that's one way that technology has restrained um conflict and I think that's 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 a good thing but mm. moving more to newer technologies um and talking specifically about drones and your recent yeah. work in that area um how do you think these kinds of new technologies are are impacting the global order. I mean, we've got a great example of uh, speaking of the Houthis. You know, the the drone attacks in you know in and around the UAE mm. last week. So, mm. what what are your views on how now new technology and specifically drones and and um, uncrewed air, aerial vehicles are are having on the global order? Yes. So, the genie's out of the bottle. Mm. For sure. This is something you can go and buy off the shelf at a handy electronics store and arm yourself. You can weaponize this platform at home, in your backyard, mm. in the workbench. Mm -hmm. um, and now we saw something similar in the early 2000s when the Iraq war started going ugly with the use of improvised explosive devices um, that were having a devastating effect on a primarily US but coalition military vehicles, armoured vehicles that were getting absolutely trashed by um, high-powered explosive devices that were just homemade, essentially homemade explosive devices with a mobile phone trigger device. Mm. That was on the ground. That's now airborne. Yes. That capability is now airborne. Uh, and that is, you know, it's had a transformative effect in conflicts in um, Ossetia and Azerbaijan, if I remember correctly, um, and the, whereby the conventional military forces, uh, the conventional measure of the prospect of success, you know, who's got the bigger forces, who's got the bigger range, who's got more logistics, who can sustain the fight longer, didn't cut it and no, no longer relevant because the drones had actually completely changed the equation. Drones had come in and actually been used to target artillery and took destroyed the artillery. Uh, and there was no, at that stage, no effective countermeasure to the drones. 
um, transformative, uh, and the battle was uh, won effectively off the back of the drones, um, cheap drones that were purchased from Turkey that were accessible and that were um, uh, essentially transformative. Mm. Now, there is an understandable and uh, appropriate desire much like with the attempt to ban the use of landmines, for a normative bar to be set, for the world to come to an agreement about what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. Um, that's proving difficult in part because for a long time the United States operated as if there was no peer competitor and it it started using drones in a way that um, was more indiscriminate than it should have been and generated a desire and a sense of opportunity with the proliferation of drones for others to do likewise. And this we saw this with um, Daesh or ISIS uh, in the middle of the last decade, 2014-15. They were using drones to drop grenades on coalition forces. That's that's now considered rudimentary. That's like like a World War One tanks versus World War Two tanks. You know, yeah. the, the, the things have become much more sophisticated, much uh, much more difficult. And of course, you've got a range of a range of types of drones. You've got the micro drones. You've got the um, you know hand thrown drones. You've got uh, ones that are that are on fixed wing that require a bit of a ramp to fire them off, yes. launch them off, and then you've got ones that are as big as, you know, planes that carry humans mm. and then ones that are, you know, almost as big as an airliner. There's some enormous ones out there now. Mm. Um, the question here is there's a couple of aspects to the debate that's been going on about, you know, the efficacy of the use of armed drones. One part of the view, and it's discussed in the book, is the, the issue of um, the uh, unevenness, the unfairness, the unfairness, if you like, or the, the lack of... Uh, reciprocity in a conflict where somebody can be in an air-conditioned ATCO hut in you know in the back of somewhere uh, watching a computer screen uh, and then launching a missile at a designated target that has gone through some kind of approval process uh, and they can shoot that and they can go home and see the wife and kids and you know and watch some telly and come back the next day for their next shift. Um, that's kind of that's a bit jarring, you know, that's mm. a bit jarring on a number of levels. Uh, and, in fact, what we're seeing also you know, amongst those kind of people is significant disorders, social, psychological disorders from the discombobulation that you know, comes mm. with that kind of experience. But what we also see is, you know, and there's a diagram we put in the in the book in the last chapter, which mm -hmm. is um, a three, three-dimensional with an X, Y, and Z uh, axis mm -hmm. of... Um, what we talk about in terms of the, the capabilities that are uh, the level of lethality, the degree of autonomy, and the drone size and range, so X, Y, and Y, and Z. So we've got, uh, you've got in there, you've got uh, assisted intelligence, augmented intelligence, and autonomous intelligence. And most of what we've been talking about is essentially assisted or augmented yes. intelligence. So there still is a human in the loop. Mm. And while there are debates about whether or not, you know, that human sitting in that ATCO hut somewhere watching a screen is doing the right thing, whether that's the right moral thing to do, um, uh, there it's a, it's a quantum step from a complete, an autonomous, we use the word autonomous vehicles a bit too loosely in my view, mm -hmm. um, because what we're often talking about is augmented intelligence or assisted intelligence. So there's still a human in the loop is actually making the decision. They're just being aided by technology to streamline the decision-making process. So they pre-position the aircraft, they tell the, the, the they've designated the, the identified target. They then corroborate it with whatever available intelligence is there. And that simplifies the decision-making process for the those, you know, the, the, the people who are going to hit the red button. You still have the moral quandary about, okay, are we, would we do this if it, would we take this action if we were actually there where, where we were at risk of them shooting back at us? Would we do this? 
Um, and what we're seeing, and, and my colleague and uh, the, one of the co-editors of the book, Paul Lashenko, has made clear in a couple of articles in the Wall Street Journal and others elsewhere in foreign affairs as well recently, is that um, we do need to, you know, us the West, United States, like-minded countries, Australia and others who are considering the use of armed drones, we need to be looking to set a bar, a, a standard of behaviour that is about the highest of ethical principles, mindful that, uh, you know, you, 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 the technology is there. So you can't pretend it doesn't exist. Mm. You can't pretend that others aren't going to use it on you or potentially use it against you. Um, but there is a really interesting uh, model about the normative effect of rules that uh, goes, it's not just about the rules, it's the it's the kind of fear of, of it being used against you if you cross the threshold. Yeah. And that is the uh, the effect of the, the chemical weapons bans of mm. the interwar period when uh, the League of Nations agreed to um, ban the use of chemical weapons now, all through the Second World War, both the Allies and the Axis were poised to use it if the other side did. Mm. But neither side did, mm. by and large, except on innocent civilians, but, you know, in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the gas camps. But in terms of against combat forces, yeah. that was not that restraint was exercised on both sides, unlike in the First World War when, you know, tens of thousands, if not millions of people were directly affected by gassing and many, many died from gas attacks. So there's a there's a, a, a bit of a kind of a precedent there for us thinking about normative standards that we can uh, kind of aspire to, having made some mistakes in the early days, to sort of set a... a, a a benchmark for consideration of what is what is acceptable that you don't use uh, uh, set and forget drones that are completely autonomous, but that you actually insist on uh, an ethical standard, not only a human in the loop, but that there are uh, probity issues about the 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 verifiability of the judgment call that is made about hitting the button or not hitting the button. Yeah. It's it's problematic. Uh, it's a fascinating domain. Mm. It's a fast moving domain. Yes, and the book seeks to kind of seize the high ground, if you like, seize mm -hmm. the, uh, and try and articulate a, a case for being proactive about defining the the standards, the norms, understanding that this is a fast moving space, but one which requires uh, some kind of normative uh, uh, foundational base. I think that's that's really interesting because I think most of the international debate really focuses on the term autonomy rather than on drones as a system. So I think that's an interesting view to be taking as to the regulation of this technology compared to um, where I think you know the GGE are talking at the moment. They're sort of focused on what what the definition of autonomy is as opposed mm. to how it's used. Mm. Um, yeah. Noting, of course, that you know these autonomous systems could be applied to any kind of weapon system, but as you say, the the impact of drones as a standout technology has really impacted the way that we're seeing um, conflict occurring. And yep. you, you know, the Azerbaijani example is a great one. You know, it's in some ways it was uh, useful to prevent civilian harm because it stopped a lot of the fighting getting into mm. the urban centre. So there's, Indeed. you know, that how how it's being used from that ethical high ground as well is really interesting. When it when it then from from our perspective sort of uh, hits that Venn diagram for what laws apply to regulation of those systems, um, yeah. So you also speak about a fourth wave of um, of scholarship. So uh, the the book itself talks about um, the fourth wave. Um, I'm going mm -hmm. to be speaking to Paul Lashenko later about the the book in some more detail. But um, could you quickly outline for us what um, what this means and what and what that looks like? Well, this is the whole idea of setting a normative bar. Um, this is about looking at the at the at what's what's out there, what the debates got us to in so far in terms of the 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 capability that the what that what the technology can do, um, the typology of um, contradictions in drone warfare, and the, this idea of in, in this in this the fourth way which we're trying to deal with is articulating a kind of a a model of thinking about this is the way it is let's not mm. pretend it's not happening yeah. um but how do we how do we uh, how do we put apply normative principles to this how do we behave in how do we 
ex- exercise judgment in the use of this fun- in this function and manage it into particularly when it's not just us who's got the capability anymore yeah um and and that's that's a debate that um kind of it's been i think it's been a little bit uh two dimensional mm-hmm. so far and that's what we're trying to do is say look there's 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 some nuance here yeah. that needs to be understood when we think about this function it's it isn't going away um and and to a certain extent a lot of what the drones what drones can do is uh not not illegitimate you know it, it if as you say you know if it's going to actually reduce reduce the the prospect of of uh of of bloodshed uh if it's actually going to contribute to a a more humane approach to uh, you know what is an inhumane thing in the first place the, mm. i mean we say it's inhumane but humanity is the history of humanity is littered with people killing each other you know it's what we've been doing for millennia uh so finding norms to apply to restrain excess uh, is is really what we're talking about here, and but nuance and understanding that that, that this is a space that has, you know, uh, a range. It's fast moving. It's mm-hmm. it's not it's not just about fully autonomous. It's about everything in between, and understanding that there is a uh, a gradation there, that there across those three axes x y and z you know as i as i mentioned you know the full the full gamut of the level of lethality to the degree of autonomy and the size and range of the of the of the of the autonomous uh aerial vehicle um and that the politically legally morally most contentious zone is at that if you can think of this as a kind of a, a box space mm. it's at that far end of the x y and z axis yeah um where where it is the most where its range and size is significant where its autonomy is greatest and where its level of lethality is greatest that is the kind of the most contentious space and that is i think the one that we were talking about the most need for us establishing normative bars that we set for ourselves and for the international community that's a really interesting way to think about it and i know that um we, you know, we at the law and the future of war program spent some time trying to come up with a taxonomy that accurately captures all of those competing issues and influences um, for autonomous weapon systems rather than necessarily drones and, it, and it's quite a it's quite a difficult um uh, activity to undertake so i i really appreciate your views on on that um that access for for um for effectively a taxonomy for drones um, mm, to mm. then put inside a normative framework. Mm. Um, now, I know we've traversed quite a lot of ground today, um, but what what would you recommend for further reading or listening or, or watching for anyone who's interested in you know, either the geopolitical strategic analysis uh, part of our conversation or perhaps the, uh, the, the drones and technologies issues? Yeah, no, Lauren... I, I, I don't know where to start. I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I'm reading so many different things, and I, I, I feel like I'm forever in a fire hose. Of uh, there's a number of really good blogs out there. Um, there's a number of really good books on this issue, and I commend to the reader, to the listener, uh, our book on drones. Um, it, it really is, I think, uh, a significant piece of work. Yeah. Uh, it does address the issue from a wide variety of. of of, of, of angles mm-hmm. um, and it, and it's and it's trying to grapple with the thorny nature of it now I'm a historian I've got a couple of uh, history books in the pipeline um, and uh, but I'm mindful that uh, so my work when I write uh, I tend to focus on um, reading for my next book so my I've got a couple of books one on on intelligence coming out mm-hmm. uh, in a little while. Um, Australian intelligence, history of Australian intelligence, and and another one on army mobilisation. Um, so that's that's my kind of uh, in terms of my publishing record. But then I'm I, I'm finding myself steeped in um, a lot of blogs on challenges in in terms of um, the range of spectrum issues, um, the conflict in Ukraine at the moment, the prospect of war in East Asia. The alliance, management of alliances, um, and um, and and so on. So I I don't have one single book to to commend to people or one single block blog. I, I it's really I think you know uh, you know as in defence of, of history uh, and the uh, historical art. Um, it, there's no question history doesn't repeat, but it does seem to rhyme, and uh, there are waves of technological innovation 
and there are waves of attempts by pundits to grapple with the consequences of technological innovations. There are dimensions to war that are unchanging and there are aspects of war that are forever changing. And so um, one of the things about the study of the history of warfare, uh, right up to a contemporary, in a contemporary sense, is it's kind of like for Lauren, your many of your listeners, it's like case law. Um, you, you know, we don't know what the future holds, uh, what how various permutations of um drone technology or artificial intelligence or robotics or uh, quantum computing might change the nature of uh, uh, secrecy, operations, deception, uh, et cetera, in, in, in thinking about war and planning to pursue national interests through the use of force. Um, but there are patterns that are evident in history and they point to some significant lessons for those who are prepared to, who've got the eyes to see and the ears to hear. And that's the space I like to operate in, uh, informed by history, mindful of technological and uh, innovative political and social circumstances of the present and environmental challenges, to then think about how the mix of those factors uh, might actually permutate into something tomorrow or the day after. That's really helpful and uh, quite a lot of um, quite a lot of food for thought, I think, for our listeners as we start the year and um, start looking towards what some of those future security challenges are and where we can find examples of things that can influence our thinking and how to manage those those uh, upcoming challenges. So thank you very much for that and thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you've got quite a lot on um, and really appreciate your views on um, quite a broad range of issues. Thanks for having me on the program, Lauren. Been a pleasure. This podcast was made by the Law and the Future of War Research Group at the University of Queensland Law School. A full list of episodes and links to additional material, as well as our contact details, are available on our website. Just search for Law and the Future of War. This podcast was recorded on the unceded lands of the Turrbal and Yagara peoples. We pay our respects to their elders past and present.